In 2008, some DJs are on their way to a set in California from South Carolina, but their plane never leaves the runway. What caused this Learjet 60 to abort takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And today we have a guest, and that guest is... Hey, I'm Jen. Jen's back. I'm back. And this time she's actually in person. Yep. I'm physically embodied. Yes. (laughs) We did did a virtual last time, and that was interesting. I mean, it worked. Yeah. But she's actually here with us this time in person. Yeah. Yeah. They fed me. Yes. Yeah, we, f- we fed her. So she came out. Yeah. <laughs> I left the house for the dinner. <laughs> nah, just kidding. <laughs> thanks uh, to, we think we said thank you to Julian, but if we didn't, thanks to our patron Julian and our new patron Cheyenne. Literally in the last like hour you yeah. joined. For being patrons. Thanks so much, friends. Thanks. Yep. Uh, thanks to Jen for recommending this episode because... Jen's the one who recommended this episode. <laughs> and we do want to tell you guys to stick around after the episode. We do have a small announcement to make. It's very important, though, and you will be very confused in future episodes if you do not stick around for that <laughs> announcement. So You might be a little confused in this episode, too, actually. Kind of. Not, not so much. Okay. So. What are we covering today, Jen? Wow! Well, today we're covering the plane crash that involved Travis Barker, among some other DJs and a couple other folks. Specifically, I heard about it when I was in college and I got a music business degree. We talked about it a lot in like the law side of it and like the lawsuits that happened after the crash. So when you told me you're doing a podcast about plane crash, I think it was like, Christy, we got to do this one. Yeah, this is an important one, actually. I mean... Uh, me being a Blink-182 fan and many other things, it's like, yeah, this is, this is important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So on September 19th, 2008, at about 11.53 Eastern Daylight Time, a bombardier, is that how you say it? Bombardier. Bombardier. See, I didn't want to be like uneducated (laughs) and say it wrong. So I was like, let's go with the French. The Bombardier (laughs) Learjet Model 60. Yeah. You can just call it a Learjet from here. Or Learjet 60. We know what you're talking about. <laughs> Owned by Intertravel and Services Incorporated and operated by Global Exec Aviation, overran runway 11 during a rejected takeoff at the Columbian Metropolitan Airport, Columbia, South Carolina. This was a non-scheduled domestic passenger flight to Van Nuys. I think that's how Van Nuys. Van Nuys. See, see, this yeah. is why I'm here. Yeah, Van Nuys, <laughs> California. Yeah. Van Nuys is the busiest general aviation airport in the world. Okay. And that it, it's because it serves Hollywood. Yeah, it's in and California. Burbank. Oh. And yeah, it's in. It's technically so, in Burbank. It serves Hollywood. It serves everybody famous. You know, much, yeah, on, pretty much. On if you're famous and you have a, a private jet, y- you'll go there. So you'll if go you've there. seen pictures of people getting on and off jets. In California, it's probably there. It's probably there. Okay. Like a 99% chance. Oh, okay. It's, it's that place. And a Learjet, for all the, those that don't know, I mean, it's a smaller jet. This is, a, this is more of a business-style jet or a private jet. And it's, uh, it's not, it doesn't have very many seats, and they are typically used for charter operations, business, or private travel. No airlines. Yeah. Yeah, it's a smaller plane. I looked up like a picture of one compared mm-hmm. to the other ones, and it's just, it's just a little bitty guy. 
It is, but they're wicked fast. They were the very first. <laughs> and they're loud. They are pretty loud, but they were the first business jet and the first private jet ever built. And uh, the Learjet itself, when when they developed it, Mr. Lear, it was built to handle like a fighter jet, but he specifically would not hire fighter pilots to fly them because he wanted the people, the passengers, obviously, generally the wealthy, to be able to travel in luxury, smooth, comfortable. So he would specifically not hire fighter pilots so that they wouldn't handle it like one because it was made to handle like one, but that wasn't the clientele. There you go. More information that's on the Learjet. Interesting. The more you know. Yeah. I like that. That's yeah. cool. The Learjet 60, though, is a much, much later version. This is a much bigger version than the original Learjets. It's really nice, though. So this was uh, operating under code 14. I think it was under 14. Part 135. Mm-hmm. That means it is a charter operation. Yes. Yep. And it said... Visual meteorological conditions prevailed, and an instrument flight rule flight plan was filed. I'm going to go into a little bit more details. This is just a lot of factual information. It's less of a story like the other one I guessed it on, because there's not, there's not really much of a story. The band gets on an airplane, heading to a festival to go play a DJ set, and they, they're ready to go. Like, they're traveling... This is normal. Like this normally would have yep. happened. They they didn't choose it, <laughs> like because of some other extra thing that happened, like the previous stuff. So yeah, they were gonna do this regardless. The people who were supposed to fly them were already hired. They knew they had a job to do, so there wasn't like anything like upfront that should have. Well, and the big difference from what we talked about when we had Jen on the last time is the last one happened in the nineteen. 19- 60, or 1959, and yep. this is in 2008, right? We have much different later. rules now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a much more strict thing, and it, it's it's not as normal to charter like prop planes like they did in the uh, the day the music died. It's more you'd charter a jet. <laughs> That's just what you'd do. Well, and, and the be- pilots yeah. are properly trained, and they have certain. Well, there's a whole lot more rules to it yeah. now. And part 135 actually exists now, so <laughs> yeah. that's a big thing. I feel like it's in part because of that crash in yep. 1959. Yes, it, it was. Yes, yeah. So time. I thought it was important to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Charter operations became a lot more strict. Yeah. and Because yeah. a lot of people lost their lives and, and got hurt. Well, and charter operations make up a huge portion of aviation these days. You'd be surprised. It's massive. I mean, Sport there are, teams? Sport teams are all chartered. Yeah, yep. they're all charter. So I did have like a little snippet on what the, the Type 14 CFR 135 operations was, just like a little definition. And there's two basic types of certificates that you can be issued in the United States. And it's based on the type of services you're going to conduct. And the first one is like air carrier certificate where you're conducting interstate foreign or overseas transportation and you carry mail and the second one is an operating certificate and that is issued to an applicant that will conduct intrastate transportation which is transportation that is conducted wholly within the same state of the united states so they do not leave the united states i believe they Mm -hmm. don't even go to canada or mexico Mm -hmm. it's just the United States contiguous. I yeah. don't know if they can go to Hawaii, but I think they can. Probably. Yeah. Um, just usually. because it's considered the United States. Yep. Usually. There was like a little snippet that I thought was really interesting. They have a con- an important consideration when you start the certification process for this specific uh, part, part of it. Yeah. They have to tell them what part, what they're going to do. So you can't yep. just switch. 
right. in the middle of it. Like if you're going to carry mail and do international, you have to get one and the other one if you're doing both. So Right. Yeah, this is actually – so 135 is a really complicated thing. So 135 is kind of a way that some carriers skirt around getting a part 121, which is the actual commercial, like, commercial airlines yeah. mm-hmm. that you fly normally. Where 121 has really, really strict rules, and they have to operate basically a very specific way with very specific airplanes. Part 135 requires you to operate very specific airplanes for a purpose, but that is for hire, and it's to do specific things. But with 135, there's so many more caveats to it. Like, in 121, airlines will only really operate from, like, the regional jet size up to, of course, you know, the the large jumbo jets, but... In charters, you can go all the way down to two-seater airplanes, yeah. all the way up to jumbo jets. I mean, we have few air carriers in the U.S. that are only Part 135, and they're basically their whole thing is chartering large jets. And yeah. on this podcast, we normally cover just Part 121 operators, kind of how we outfitted this, but yep. there are a couple of Part 135 crashes that mean a lot. Yes, yeah. they do. And we'll get into the lasting impact on this one later so there's different parts of the 135 like certificate ex- itself and i thought it was interesting to go through um just really quick there's the on demand which means and the, the if these would have existed in 1959 that plane would have never taken off so right. yeah i think it's important to say this so if you're in on-demand operations which it can be conducted in airplanes that have a passenger seating configuration of 30 seats or less the maximum payload is 7,500 pounds, so 7,500 pounds, or in any rotor craft, which... Helicopter. Right, helicopter. It's a helicopter. So. On-demand certificate holders can also conduct limited scheduled operations within the following restrictions. So it, uh, they have to do less than five round trips per week on at least one route between two or more points according to the published flight schedules. So they're familiar with that route. Right. No turbojet airplanes can be used. And airplanes are limited to a maximum passenger seating configuration of nine seats or less. So you definitely would not fill up a 30-passenger plane in those. Right. This is a very small charter operation. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't want you making it into a commercial operation. Right. No, that would be your business aviation, your private jet. Yeah. And, And smaller than that. I mean, you're talking... You know, small airplanes, single engine, twin engine PC-12s. Prop. Yeah, PC-12s, exactly. My airplanes. <laughs> the airplanes of my people. The airplanes of my people. All right, so we're going to go through basically like a timeline of right after everybody boarded and they're starting takeoff. So when they reviewed like the CVR transcript, the flight crew received clearance instructions from the ground controller at 2347 to taxi from the northeast fixed-based operator's parking ramp to runway 11. After a short discussion with the first officer about which way to turn, the captain, who was the pilot flying, turned the airplane left onto the taxiway U. Uniform. Or uniform, yeah. Yep. So the controller then provided an amended taxi clearance after noticing that the airplane had turned the wrong way. You know, which, I mean, I guess could happen, you know. Yeah, I, it can. Uh, usually, it's, if you're paying attention. Unlike roads, which don't get me wrong, it's easy to get lost on roads, but airports? It's not. They have everything uh, marked. Everything's, <laughs> everything's, okay, yes, everything has signs, but you'd be surprised. There are some times you get to an intersection, and there's like, there's like four different taxiways that intersect, and you're like, 
I don't have a clue. That's like JFK is terrible. Oh my god. There's like four runways intersect and then a bunch of intersecting taxiways. You get to a point and you're like, I'm going to go this way and hope it's right. O'Hare also Somebody looks Leo. disastrous. Oh, O'Hare's a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't want to do that. So, Brendan had to do his nighttime currency recently, and I did a touch and go with him. And when we left the runway to, you know, get out of the plane, he turned onto a taxiway. I'm like, I didn't realize that entrance was there. Oh. It's dark. Yeah. It can be hard to see. Even if it's lit, it's dark. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the controller provided the amended taxi clearance after they noticed they were going the wrong way. The flight crew followed that amended taxi clearance, which involved back taxiing the airport on runway 11 and performing a 180 degree turn onto the runway to position the airplane. For oh, takeoff. so backtracking down, yeah, down the runway, runway 11 and turning around so they can mm-hmm. take off. Okay. Yeah. Do you remember what? Fl- yeah. It reminds me of. That's what Tenerife did. Yep. Tenerife. Yeah. Tenerife. Except exactly. there wasn't a 47 right in front of them that couldn't see them. Yeah. This yeah, is just a Learjet. Details. But, oh man. It's just so crazy how like the ones that I choose to do always tie back to the Tenerife. A lot of things tie back to Tenerife because there's a lot happened there. Yeah. At 23.51, the captain briefed the RTO procedure and stated, we've got plenty of runway, so we'll abort for anything below 80 knots after V1 and before V2 engine failure, fire malfunction loss of directional control, (laughs) all the big things after V2. We'll go ahead and take it into the air and treat it as an in-flight emergency. It sounds weird. I will get into it later. I was, because here's, okay. Yep. I, I have a face. Here's why. V1's the no, is the go, no, go, right? If you hit V1, usually there's no turning back from that. Exactly. So it's interesting to me that they're like between V1 and V2, which V2 is usually rotation speed. Well, so sort of. It's, so there's V1, V rotate, and then V2. I will get into that later because. I have things to say. <laughs> we'll dive deeper into V-speeds later, because V-speeds are really important, but there's a lot of caveats to that. The definitions are really interesting. We'll talk about V1 specifically later. So that was a takeoff briefing, and that's what it's... Pre-takeoff. Pre- yeah, so pre-takeoff briefing, but that is what it's supposed to sort of sound like. I caught some weird things, but we'll talk about it later. So the first officer replies, correct. And the captain asked if the first officer had any questions. And the first officer asked, reference the uh between 80 and uh, V1. You're only uh, aborting for fire, fire failure, loss of directional control. See, he's just as confused as I am. Like, yeah. what are you talking about? Exactly. That was a lot. To be fair, that was a lot of information all at once. Well, it's like when Brendan did his pre-takeoff briefing with us well to be fair with the pre-takeoff briefing we have with brendan i he like checked understanding as he went not here's this entire thing okay you have any questions (laughs) yeah well i mean kind of because his pre-takeoff briefing was like well if we have an engine failure on the runway like i'll do this to the throttle i'll do this to the fuel mixture like all of this okay yeah but we're not his (laughs) co-pilot he's the one who's supposed to take care of that when you have a co-pilot that's like what (laughs) <laughs> uh, he said it's, ah like four times it's a little yeah. concerning you might want to re-go through that that, that briefing, briefing again yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so after the co-pilot was like what <laughs> like the first officer uh, the captain replied yes and then they added or an inverted thrust uh, TR deployment thrust, thrust reverser. reverser thank you the first officer then stated that will uh that will cause loss of directional control i guess 
Well, yes. I would hope he would know that, though. Yeah. To which the captain replied, exactly, huh? They go together. <laughs> okay. Oh, boy. This crew. That's <laughs> not I, I have my doubts already. The first officer later stated, well, uh, if the runway is long, I abort. But if it's short, I kind of do different briefing depending on what the length of the runway is. But we're pretty heavy, so it's probably not a bad idea. The f*** does that mean? (laughs) It's good if you have a long runway. Not too good with short runway. So I think they just basically say, hey, if the runway's short, I'm going to change the way that I brief everyone. And to be fair, there's a reason for that. Because, okay, we'll talk about it later, but that (laughs) that changes your numbers. It does. Yeah, yeah. So the length of... Uh, runway changes v1 v2 all that your reference speeds yes yes your reference because speeds. um if it's shorter you have to get to a certain speed well and it affects Faster. your it affects your go no go yes because it's at a different point on the runway uh-huh. mm-hmm. you don't have as much runway to speed up well and to be clear you're trying to clear the 50 foot obstacle at the end of the runway that's the thing they teach you in aviation you're trying to clear a 50 foot obstacle at the end of the runway so you have to base all your speeds on clearing 50-foot obstacle, end of the runway. Yeah, that makes sense. So the flight crew continued performing pre-takeoff based on the CVR transcript. They did their checklist, the items, uh, and they checklisted all the items that the captain requested. And then they told him the wind information. I'm sorry, she. Yes, the um, captain is a the woman. The captain is oh, a woman. Okay, good cool. to know, good to know. Not that that's very much different than a man, but you know. I try. <laughs> try Having to... a good visual representation <laughs> yeah. in your brain. Mm-hmm. you know. The captain initiated the takeoff roll, and at 2355, the first officer stated, 80 knots, cross-check, to which the captain replied, check. At 2355 and 10 point something milliseconds, the first officer reported V1. About 1.5 seconds later, the CVR captured the beginning of a loud rumbling sound. Mm. Four-tenths of a second after the beginning of the loud rumbling sound, the first officer stated, go. The captain stated something else unintelligible. And at 23.55 and 13, the first officer stated, go, go, go. (laughs) The CVR recorded a sound similar to a metallic click. And at 23.55.14, the captain stated, go? (laughs) Uh-oh. Wow. Uh Uh-oh. There's a lot of um, not communicating happening here. And also, there's a lot of... Not clear. So, here's the thing, right? Is they talked about if there's going to be an issue on takeoff between V1 and V2, right? And V2 is different than rotation speed, as you just told me, right? Correct. They just hit V1. They heard this rumbling sound. To me, after they've already done this briefing, it should be like, okay, we're aborting takeoff now. So there is an exception, which I will get into later. Which is fine. So, But if you're not going to abort takeoff, then you need to make sure that you do the proper verbiage. Instead of saying go, you should say rotate or something to that effect, right? I don't know. It seems like they're very panicked. Which, again, if you're hearing stuff you're not supposed to hear. It's... Yeah, yeah. Something bad is happening very quickly. Yes. Yeah. Things so are breaking down. It's kind of hard to be like, do we go or do we stop? Can we stop? 
what's happening. And it's been three milliseconds, basically. Yeah, everyone, wow. it's really hard to, to figure that out. Like, we talk all the time about Those stuff. timestamps and... And timestamps, but you don't realize how fast that yeah, is. Yeah, Which I get into it so later fast. as well. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. a lot of, for example, a lot of, like, red light cameras, you get, I think it's three-tenths of a second, you get leniency. So if you're in the light, and it's three-tenths right after you go through, and the light turns red, you're fine. So, like, that's a, that's a tiny amount of time. Yeah. yeah. And they even reference three-tenths in here. So, it's like, you, your tire pops on the interstate. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Yep. So, the first officer then stated, no. Uh, all right. Get uh, what the expletive was that. Oh, I say it later. <laughs> Can I say it now? Yes. No. <laughs> I want to do it later. Okay, okay. But you can also do it later. Okay, go for it. What the f*** was that? <laughs> there we go. There we go. That is such a you saying. It is. That's why I was like, can I say it now? There you go. Uh, the CVR recorded another metallic click sound, and at 2355.17, which is about three seconds or so later, uh, the captain stated, I don't know. We're not going, though. At 2355.18... One more second. Another metallic click sound was recorded. And one more second later, the captain stated, full out. Within one second, the CVR captured a sound consistent with the application of a wheel braking. And at 2355.21, which is about five seconds later, the CVR captured a sound consistent with the noise wheel steering disconnecting and the warning tone going off. I'll get into that later, too. Uh, so my, my question, and you might not know this answer, and you guys might not know this answer, but when she's saying that we're not going, is it the plane's not rotating? They're trying to get big. up, but they can't, is, Cor- is my question. No. She is rejecting takeoff. Oh, okay. So they're not trying to pull up at this point. No, she is rejecting takeoff. Okay, so that's what that's what I'm saying, is... Are they trying to lift off and they can't, or that's the confusion. she's just saying no? I will explain more of what is happening in the cockpit later, because there is a more in-depth analysis in the analysis. Okay. Sorry, friends. I know we're saying that we'll get into it later. I have questions. I'm sorry. Okay. I, know, I know, but I did so much work on these notes. I know, but I'm analysis, allowed. Analysis. That's my entire job, okay? I don't have a lot of stuff to do. I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the captain stated full out. Within one second, the CVR <laughs> captured a sound consistent with the application of wheel braking, and then it also captured the nose wheel steering disconnect warning tone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seven seconds later, the first officer stated, shut him off. And at 2355.32, the first officer stated, they're shut off, they're shut off. The engines? No. We don't know. At oh. 2355.36, yeah, at 36, the first officer made radio transmission to the CAE tower, control frequency, saying, uh, roll the equipment, we're going off the end. And then the recording ended at 2355.41. So it ended 2355.41, and it started at 2347.04. And that's how long it took. Yep. It never takes very long. No. It literally takes, I mean, probably a max of like three minutes, um, if that. In most incidents. Yeah. This one's way short. Yeah. I mean, this happens so fast. So the airplane ended on an embankment on the side of a five-lane road. Oh, I did. Which you would have saw if you got this month's newsletter. It looks horrifying. Yep. 
You can see how small it is yep. compared to like a normal charter, like a normal commercial plane. Yeah, yeah it's small. Nothing's but left. The top and right side of the fuselage had burned to the cabin floor and the aft fuselage was mostly consumed by fire. Now you should talk about the people on board and what happened to them. All right. So the personnel info we have, the captain was hired by Global Exec Aviation in 2008. The first officer was hired in the same year, 2008 in August. So they're all pretty new to the company. Yeah. Uh-huh. According to Global Exec Aviation's director, the accident flight was the crew member's second flight of the day, and they had previously flown together twice. The captain, aged 31, held airline transport pilot certification. ATP. Wow. For multi-engine land airplanes with type ratings for Cessna CE-500. Okay. Yeah. She got that in 2005. Learjet 60, which is the one she was driving, or flying, flying yes. which was in 2007, which was a year prior to the crash. And the Cessna CE650, which was in 2008. Ooh, nice. I think one of those Cessnas was also in the company's fleet as well. Mm-hmm. I think it was the last one. I'm not positive. I can't remember that. Basically she- citations, big citations. Nice. Mm-hmm. She held a first-class airman medical certificate that was issued in 2008. Normal. All that fun stuff. She also had to wear corrective lenses. She had accumulated 3,140 hours total flight time. 2,040 of those were pilot in command. She had 35 hours in the Learjet 60. Eight hours were as the pilot in command, which... Very new to being very new in the, that the one specific aircraft. Yeah. specific aircraft. 118 hours in the Cessna CE650. So I think it was the one she was flying this day that was the newest one to her. Yep. Yep. Before the two-day trip pairing that included the accident flight, the captain's most recent experience as the pilot in command of a Learjet 60 was in August of 2008. And 30 days before the accident, the captain had 19 hours of second in command in the, in the type of plane, hmm. 15 hours in the 650. In the 90 days, 30 days, and 24 hours preceding the accident, the captain had logged about 67, 36, and 1.5 hours respectively. So I don't think they were very tired. No. Uh, the captain completed Global Exec Aviation's initial new hire training on 2008 in January. They did flight safety. She she passed. Like there was really nothing in her background that's that was really like that came out really badly. She did have a lot of. Um, she had a couple when she was at about two hundred, three hundred yeah. hours. But it's that was she has three thousand hours at mm-hmm. this point. So investigators were pretty much like we're not yeah. gonna talk about those that. are like new pilot things. Yeah, and right. she went back retested most of them the same day. And did just fine. And passed. So. Which happens. Sometimes, yeah. if you've ever taken any kind of uh, test, not just, you know, flight tests, but sometimes you have to go through it once, and then you're like, oh, okay, and then you go through it again and you pass. Exactly. Yeah. We've And we've talked about that with pilots before, too, on this podcast, where they fail something, they go back, they redo it, they pass. It's like you, you can't get better if you don't try, you know, yep. and you're going to keep doing it. Failing so. is how you learn. Coming from a teacher. So, yeah. The first officer. So, they were also hired in 2008 in August. Uh, The previous employer, also a Part 135 operator, provided him with Learjet 60 flight training and his most recent Learjet 60 proficiency check, which was in 2008 of March. They reviewed the FAA records. They found no previous accidents, no incidents, no enforcement actions, no disapprovals, like the pilot in command. But then again, he has far less hours. Right. Which is the case with 
mm-hmm. usually co co pilots or uh, first officers. First officers, first officers yeah. and most of his history is just one thirty fives. Yeah. So it's not like he's doing commercial stuff. Yeah. So then the the just the crew really quickly they did. A couple flights. The records revealed that both the captain and the first officer were passengers aboard a commercial flight that departed Long Beach, California. They went to Cali- or they went to New York. They checked into hotel rooms. Basically, there's nothing. They got seven hours of sleep. They really went deep into the crew as well to see if they had enough sleep. Everybody was said to, you know, they're totally fine. And on the day of the accident, telephone activity for the captain showed numerous phone calls, text messages. She left three one-hour interrupted periods, basically had plenty of time. For naps. For naps, things like that. Also, real quick, uh, while we were talking about sleep and stuff, it's important that they look into that stuff because we talked about before how fatigue can affect a pilot's performance. Yeah, even if you think it won't, it does. And kind of preemptively into my part, you heard the weird pre-takeoff briefing. Yes. They were like, Mm -hmm. are they fatigued? The answer is no. No, they had plenty of sleep. They had time to rest before they flew. So that wasn't a factor. The captain was Sarah Lemon. Okay. And the first officer was James Bland. Mm. There were six people on board. Four people died. Yes. The two crew. And then two of the passengers. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't any other crew. There wouldn't be on a Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, on a Learjet, anyways. Yeah. It's too small. You just, like, yell stuff into the back, like, hey! So, if this thing happens, do this! Pretty much. (laughs) So, just to reiterate, the captain, the first officer, and two of the passengers passed away yep. in the crash. Perished, yeah. And Perished. two passengers survived. Two passengers did survive. Uh, Travis Barker and Goldstein escaped the plane, and they told the first responders that there were four other people on board. Mm-hmm. So. so, autopsies were performed on all of the deceased, and the crew died of smoke inhalation, evident from the carbon monoxide and cyanide found in their blood. And burns with blunt force trauma contributing. The two deceased passengers died from blunt force trauma. None of the passenger seatbelts were found fastened, which makes sense for the survivors, but not so much for the deceased. Right. When Mm -hmm. interviewed, the two survivors said that the safety briefing delivered by the crew was not professional and pretty much consisted of, you know where the seatbelts are? Cool. The fire extinguisher and snacks are in the back. You've all done this before. But both said they fastened their seatbelts, but didn't notice if the other two passengers did or not. Okay, well, and that's literally what I just said happened. Like, hey, if this happens, yeah. Which, okay, to be fair, so if you've ever been on a a commercial flight anywhere, they always have the same safety briefing. Safety briefing. You want to know why that happens every time? It's because everyone knows... This is how you buckle your seatbelt in case of an accident. Here's what you're told to do. And here's how to find flotation devices and all this stuff, right? And here's the exit. So it's second nature. Exactly. Or at least they can tell you, hey, we did a a briefing before the flight started. Yeah. Right? On a charter plane, especially the small, it's really the pilots that have to do that. And if they are passive like this, it can be really dangerous because not everybody knows where everything is. Get off your plane. And (laughs) if that happens. So... That is what the passengers testified. However, later when they were talking about their escape, they're like, oh, by the way, in the briefing, they also told us all these things. And it's like, okay. That, so which one was it? Exactly. You know, yeah. So on that note, both passengers were able to escape through the aft right exit door after recalling that the crew told them where the emergency exit was. So obviously they said something more than their initial 
what they initially said the yep. crew did. Yeah. So they leapt through a wall of flames and had to stop, drop, and roll to put out their clothing or just tore off their clothing. Which, yeah. That both, sounds like a Travis Barker thing to do. Well, it didn't really work, though. Both of the yeah. surviving passengers had second and third degree burns. Ooh. Yeah. That's Yikes. not good. This investigation was performed by the NTSB, which yep. stands for the National Transportation Safety Board, in case you're new here. Do-do-do-do! They were, <laughs> as you can tell from Jen's rendition, they were able to recover the cockpit voice recorder, but there was no flight data recorder on board, so they only had the one recorder to work with. Was it such not a pain. required? Was not required. Nope. Uh, that could have been though? so much more helpful. I think it is. I'm not it, sure. It might be, but it might not be. This airplane It's hard pro- with charters. Yeah, well, and it depends on the size of airplane. Yep, it's dependent on the size. Like, even within the same company, their citations might have you know, four more seats and qualify. Mm-hmm. And this airplane might be just too small. Doesn't qualify. Or it just depends on the certificate. Now, yep. I said I was going to not say this recommendation that way later, but I'm going to say it now. The safety board recommended that they install a cockpit image recorder to record the airspeeds. And like, you could just require a flight data recorder, but what do I know? Yeah. yeah. So simpler. Even if it's like a flight data recorder that doesn't record everything, like on uh, passenger jets and yeah, stuff, yeah, just, just bare minimum, just yeah, just airspeeds and things like Air that. Airspeed, heading, altitude, just so that if something happens to the plane, investigators have something to go on. Yeah. More data, but it's okay. So while w- while waiting for the data to be processed in Washington D.C. at NTSB headquarters, investigators come through the wreckage to see what they could determine. There was enough quote unquote organic debris. It's plant life. Dirt. Okay, thank God. Dirt. Ingest- like, please don't be people. <laughs> dirt, plants, no. things like that. Foliage. Though there wasn't a whole lot of foliage, it was mostly dirt. Ingested in the engines that they determined the engines were operating normally at the time of impact. So, yeah, they were running like they were supposed to yep. be. Yep. So, next, we saw in Northwest Flight 255 in episode 59 that taking off without proper configuration can cause a crash on takeoff. So, investigators looked at those, the flaps, the slats, etc., but found no anomalies. That's so that, the one without the flaps, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, what else do we know What that has caused a crash on takeoff? Weight and balance comes to mind. We've had a couple of those. So investigators took a look through the weight and balance calculations. Or they would have, if they'd been performed. <gasps> Commence they... Miranda grumbling. No! <laughs> they didn't do their weight and balance checks? Nope. Nope. Remember, they said, we're pretty heavy. <laughs> Give me a second. <laughs> they knew that in their head, but didn't figure it out exactly how heavy. <laughs> that's why, there's reasons why you have to do those calculations. It's like after yes. winter when you get on the scale and you're like, oof, oof. So, investigators proceeded to perform <laughs> the calculation after the fact and found that although the maximum gross takeoff weight of 23,500 pounds may have been exceeded by 300 pounds... Investigators determined that there is nothing to suggest that weight and balance had an effect on this crash. Okay. Now, I want to dive into this just a bit so we're not spreading disinformation. Obviously, you should not intentionally load your plane to be overweight. No. The maximum takeoff weight exists for a reason. Yep. It affects CG. Yep. That being said, engineers inherently know that things happen. People can be dumb. What have you. So they built in an error on each side just so in case. engineers build in a slight buffer called a safety factor, for those of you who care, so that if you are just a titch high, you can still take off. You just have to take up more runway. Yeah. Yep. Usually. That, Which that didn't gonna... exist here. 
If we had yeah. been full, well. like when we flew with Brendan, that would have had to happen. Yeah. We're like, eh, we're a little heavy. We'll just take a little bit more runway. It's fine. So, engineers know that people can be dumb. I We were literally trained, like, build in a safety factor because stuff happens. And that is not the word that was taught to me. <laughs> it wasn't stuff happens. Yeah, obviously. Anyway, so now that we've eliminated that possibility, the investigators began listening to the CBR. In the absence of the FDR, investigators performed a couple of sound spectrum studies to get the N1 speed of the engine from the sound of the engines, as well as the ground speed from the sound of the tires rolling on the runway grooves. Interesting. Wow. That's that called forensic some... ide- audiologist right there. Yeah. That That's some... called science, <laughs> That is bitch. some serious work. Whoa! <laughs> That's a plain science. <laughs> that is some serious work they had to put in. Yep. The takeoff roll started out pretty normal, accelerating from 12 knots to 131 knots in 20-ish seconds, at which point the first officer said V1, which is the go-no-go, the point of no return. Right. You have to take off after V1. Unless, I hear it, unless coming up. It's a little ways away. Then two seconds later, and 2,500 feet down the runway, a long rumbling sound was heard on the CVR. So now the crew was presented with the question, abort or continue? The crew was trained that you can reject a takeoff between 80 knots and V1 for major problems, engine fire, engine failure, uncommanded thrust, reverse deployment, etc. Per their training and operating procedure, you should only abort after V1 if, quote, airplane control is seriously in doubt. So you can't control the airplane. Correct. This captain chose... Well, sort of chose, it's complicated, to abort the takeoff. Now, a rumbling sound doesn't necessarily provide enough information to conclude a lack of serious airplane control. Investigators seriously questioned why the captain would think a rejected takeoff would be apt for the situation presented, so they went back in the CVR to listen to that wonderful pre-takeoff briefing, which happens in the cockpit before takeoff, usually at the gate, sometimes on taxi, depends on the circumstance. During the briefing, the captain incorrectly stated that the takeoff could be rejected for major anomalies between V1 and V2. V2 is the takeoff safety speed, which would provide a minimum climb gradient after loss of power. Can you go into that a little more? And V1? How those are calculated? Why they exist? So the whole idea behind V speeds, because it's really important, they're all the safety thresholds of the airplane, basically. So V1 is really, in particular, extremely important. Because, yes, it's your quote-unquote go-no-go speed. That is basically your point of no return. Anything beyond that point, you're taken off. Unless the airplane is considered out of control. In which case, you can try to reject. That's pretty much it. But, otherwise, anything else, even a single engine failure, if you still have one engine, you're going. That's it. You know, you strike a bird, you're going. Doesn't matter. You know, there's very, very few reasons why you would stop beyond that point. So once you pass V1, you keep going. And then they calculate from there usually V2, which is your single engine safety threshold. So you can take off and fly to a reasonable altitude and continue to climb out at a pretty normal climb out rate with a single engine once you're beyond V2. So you have to be at or above that speed in order for that to be considered a reasonable thing to do, which is usually just beyond rotation speed anyways. So airplanes are designed pretty well in that regard. And V-speeds kind of continue like that. It's your best rate of climb, your, you know, best rate of descent, 
uh, or best rate of glide. You know, like there's there's all these different V speeds for so many different important safety factors on the airplane, and they're all the threshold factors. They're calculated numbers specific to the airplane. So you would calculate based on runway length, weight, power, those kinds of things. So those factors change the numbers on each airplane individually. I mean, you can have two of basically exactly the same airplane, and they would still have different numbers based on who's in it, how much fuel, the length of runway. So all these things are really calculated specific to the airplane. There's a handful of V-speeds that remain the same. They're still specific to that airplane, but they remain the same, no matter how much fuel or anything. Those have more to do with your best rate of climb, your cruise, your glide ratio, your glide rate. And so those, for performance sake, the airplane will perform best if you put it at that speed, basically. All planes have this. So to be uncontrollable before or at V1, after V1, right? Probably an issue with control surfaces yes. would be my guess. Because that's really the only reason. Or like double edging failure, too. There's a host of things that could cause it. But once you go beyond V1, you guarantee that you're... It's a high-risk situation. Well, not only, high, not only is it high-risk, but basically... It's supposed to be a guarantee that beyond that speed, you'll be past the point where you can stop before the end of the runway. Right. No matter what's going to happen. That's the idea. Okay. None of the captain's training history showed any evidence of being unfamiliar with V1 and the go-no-go. In fact, a previous instructor said the captain was meticulous and well-organized. It's hard to say, though, whether this single statement was indicative of anything because other things during the taxi made it sound like she was overall not focused. For example, turning at the wrong spot. Also, she read back the wind information wrong. Investigators determined that there was no reason to think that the captain didn't understand rejected takeoff criteria and likely just misspoke. Before we continue with the rejected takeoff, let's talk about that rumbling, shall we? Yeah, what the heck happened? I have a theory. <laughs> you remember that I said the rumbling started about 2,500 feet down the runway? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, investigators looked through the wreckage trail and found at about that point the first pieces of the right outboard main landing gear tire. Mm. So they burst a tire. Yep. yep. Investigators determined that the rumbling was from when the tire separated and hit the underside of the airplane. The marks on the runway showed that they also veered to the right, and they determined that the gouges were likely from the wheel rim on the runway surface. Additionally, they found hydraulic fluid, meaning that at least one brake hose was cut. The first officer said, go, 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 when they reached 137 knots, and their V1 was calculated to be around 136 knots. The captain then asked, go, as the plane reached around 144 knots. And as the sound of power decreased slightly, assumedly the captain pulling back the power. It then increased for a second, then decreased again when the first officer said, No? Uh, alright. What the fuck was that? The inboard right tire burst as well. Ooh. Both crew reacted to the situation differently. The investigators acknowledged that as the pilot monitoring and not pilot flying, the first officer did not have as much information to make the call. 
Since his hands weren't physically on the controls, he wouldn't have known the extent of the loss of control. But the tire marks indicated that despite veering right briefly, it did realign with the runway heading, so the captain did regain some level of control. Yeah, I because planes have a lot planes have a lot of tires, fun fact. Generally. Um, not all it depends. It depends on the airplane. Some have many have less than your car. Yeah, it de- it depends, right? But for I would think for a, a Learjet, at least four, right? On so this type of Learjet, you have two on the left, two on the right, and one at the nose. Okay, so, five. so you have five. Yep. I would think that you would still be able to fly with a couple burst so, tires, and this is but so, she didn't know the tires were burst, right? So and all she felt was them veer to the right, which is a loss of control. Right. And as a matter of fact, specifically in V-speeds, V1, after V1, a tire burst is still considered reasonable what? to fly. You're going. doesn't matter. If it burst, you're out. You're but flying. that's also assuming she knows what that is, which they clearly didn't. Right. They had no idea what just happened. She briefly considered taking off when she had increased power, but ultimately decided to reject takeoff. Quote, Therefore, the NTSB concludes that the captain's uncertainty as to whether to continue the takeoff suggests that her initial action to reject it did not result from a perception that the airplane was uncontrollable and could not fly. End quote. She then decreased N1 in the engine to 7300 RPM and said full out, probably meaning thrust reverser deployment and applied the brakes. They decelerated to 128 knots, and at this point, all of the main landing gear tires had failed, left and right, inboard and outboard. This is kind of common, because once you've lost one, and especially when you're talking about a heavy airplane, which I'm sure we'll get into, that weight then has to be distributed amongst other tires, tires, but there's less of them now, and so they start quickly failing one by one. Yep. Now, I'd want to be clear. The time between the rumbling to committing to rejected takeoff was three seconds. Life and death situation. Very small. Yeah, it's very, very fast. Three seconds. And that's that's one of those human factors things they talk about in aviation where, okay, it was the captain's decision to reject the takeoff, and you can't call that the wrong decision because in three seconds, the human brain had to go, something feels horribly wrong. I feel like I'm in danger. We need to stop. You can't call that a wrong decision. That was three seconds worth of decision making. Well, it's unbelievable. Split second. So yeah. here's part of the problem I'm having. Not that that she decided to reject, take off, reject. Right? It's when you're in a situation where you don't know what's happening. It's your brain goes a million miles an hour. My problem is, is there was no communication between her and the first officer on her decision to go or not to go. I would agree. So. So, because he, it feels like he had no idea what was happening and he didn't know why she was making decisions. Correct. Yes. Which is bad CRM, right? Yes. yes. Which the investigators did point out and I don't talk about a whole lot to be But yeah, I would argue that that's just more than anything. That's just poor CRM. They lost use of verbiage. Yeah. Almost immediately, which. Yeah. When you're going to have a, a, a rejected takeoff, you say out loud, reject, or you say, uh, no go. There, there are very clear. specific verbiages that are clear. You don't have this go, go, go. 
what and reflections. And part yeah. of this was attributed to training. Right. Well, yes. and yes. you have to realize when we usually on this podcast, we talk about people that have way more hours than these two pilots, right? Yep. So the fact that they kind of lost verbiage and communication doesn't surprise me. It's just that if something like this were to happen, I don't know. There needs to be some sort of way, like, even just to say, nope, we're not going. Well, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in recommendations. Anyway, seven seconds after that decision, ten seconds after the rumbling began, the nose wheel steering disconnect warning was heard. In the context of when it was heard, it means the system changed to air mode, which would happen with damage to the air ground signal, and they found components of that system on the runway. Yeah, that's nice. So what if the plane switched to air mode? What does that change? They can't steer. It turns out a whole lot changes, actually. Yeah. It meant that the thrust reversers that were deployed automatically stowed. Oh, no. Because mm-hmm, they can't deploy in the air. So the, Oh, and these are the bucket. They are the buckets. Yep. The electronic engine control logic changed and told the full authority digital electronic control to change to a forward thrust power schedule. Basically, because the crew had commanded full reverse thrust, but now the plane was in the air, in air mode, the system provided forward thrust at near takeoff power. So rather than slowing down, they are now accelerating to the end of the runway. With no tires, no brakes, and nothing in the cockpit that said there was an anomaly in the system. The captain, with all of her outside indicators, would have thought and expected to continue reverse thrust. Not that she probably knew it, but the only way out of this was to stow the thrust reversers, even though they Mm -hmm. were already stowed. Something you normally don't want to do when you're rejecting takeoff. Yeah, because what it does is it brings the airplane... It resets the airplane. Well, it brings the airplane to idle, rather than accelerating. But she had no way of knowing that it was now in air mode and that her thrust reversers were stowed. Right. Because her controls said full thrust reverse. And that's not what was happening, and they had... There was nothing in the cockpit that's, telling her that's otherwise. That's a training problem. No, it's a system problem. It well, is a system problem. There's nothing, There's nothing, and I, I understand why, in what sense would this ever really actually be useful, because the, and I don't know how they would ever program it, but the basically the sensor that tells the airplane, I'm airborne or I'm not airborne, shattered. And so when that shatters, I mean, the airplane just automatically assumes it's airborne. Yep. And... You know, you can't, that's one of those systems where you can't really have a warning for one or the other because the airplane's either on the ground or in the air. Right. It's not going to consider either one of those to be a failure. But specifically, there was no indication saying, you want the thrust reversers deployed and they are stowed. Right. There's nothing that said that dissonance. So the only warning they could have had is, yeah, the fact that the airplane considers itself airborne and you're attempting to put out the thrust reversers. Well, and the only way they would know that is when they heard that um, the ding or whatever that was the indication that that it was in air mode, which meant that the reversers right, stowed, which, which is means a I whole need to train switch it back. Yeah, so I part of it's like when you hear this, you do this, but the company probably didn't even know that that was like a thing. Like, hey, oh, if it's this a happens, buried thing behind yep. like two processes. Yep. Yeah, and so we'll get more into it in recommendations like, too. Hold this button and press that button to get well, this thing to happen. And fun yeah. fact, the airplane probably does this because Lauda. Yep. Yep. Four, exactly. Where one deployed, deployed in. during flight and it caused the entire plane to crash. Yep. So, I'll have it linked in the in the <laughs> website. Website. So, let's go over the initial source of this accident, the tires. 
Yeah. Investigators reconstructed the right outer main landing gear tire to look something like this. Oh. Oof. Oh, that thing is jacked up. Very shredded. What is quickly evident in the image, which is on our website, is that the damage was to the walls of the tire, not yep. so much yeah. the surface that meets the runway. Yep. This condition is caused by sidewall over deflection, where basically the tire stretched too much in the sidewall. This happens from one of two conditions, either the tires overloaded or the tires under deflated. Well, what would it take to overload these tires? If properly inflated, each tire would need to be loaded with 12,200 pounds to show the same damage. Multiplied by the four main landing gear tires is 48,800 pounds. Anyone remember what the maximum takeoff weight was? I think it was like 32 something. It was 23,500 yeah, pounds, and they were at about 23,800 pounds. Needless mm -hmm. to say, there's no way they were overloaded. No. 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 I mean, that's a big difference. Yeah, yep. safety factor on these tires is high. So, process of el elimination, they had to be under-deflated. Right. According to maintenance records, the tires had not been checked in the last three weeks prior to the accident. Don't you check them every time? Goodyear, the manufacturer of these tires, say that they will lose pressure at about 2.2% daily. Well, three weeks at about 2% per day, plus some other not-as-simple mathematic equations thrown in, investigators estimate that the tires were about 36% under-deflated at the time oh, of the accident. Yeah, they have rough. no good year. <laughs> it's like, kind of like, if you had a flat tire, and you just kept driving on that flat tire until that tire just completely demolished itself. Yep. Yep. Your other tires are going to go, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, like yeah. well, because once yeah. one is done, yeah. you the have, others are not. They're all now overloaded. Yep. But they were also all under-deflated, too. So... No yep. wonder all of them failed. Yeah, when they don't get checked. And there's actually a rule for this in aviation, too, where even, like... It, mostly, this doesn't apply really in general aviation, but in more commercial aviation, you can't even tow an airplane yep. without checking the tire that pressure first. That actually applies first. here, too. So yeah. Learjet says that the tire should re be replaced in any instance where they were operated on, operated on, mind you. That means not just taxiing, landing, but being towed is oh, right, yeah. what I mean. Learjet says that the tire should be re replaced in any instance where they were operated on with 15% or more under deflation, because as it turns out, under deflation leads to sidewall over deflection and tires bursting. Well, yep. won't you know? Yeah. What a concept. Global Exec Aviation's maintenance director said he didn't know how often the tire pressure should be checked, but used the maintenance manual for each airplane type to know when to perform scheduled maintenance. Any guesses for how often the Learjet manual says to check the tires? At least every day. The correct answer is daily. Yeah. At least. Probably multiple times a day. I check it every time I turned it on. Well, yeah. you have a system that you can do that. <laughs> so... The correct answer is daily, and it turns out it was the same for all of the planes in their fleet, not just the Learjet. Some of you may be asking, well, shouldn't the flight crew have noticed that the tires were low on their walk around? Unless they don't do, unless they don't don't. do that check. So long story short is no. The NTSB says that there is no way to tell visually when a tire is under-deflated. It's not mm -hmm. like your car tire. Nope. These are no. much more rigid tires. They're, well, and if you've ever seen an airplane tire, it's so... It's a donut. It's a thick It's board. so big, yeah, yeah. It's so thick that if it's under-deflated, it's still going to look like it's inflated. Yep. Yeah. And isn't there, like, metal meshing in those? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are. Yeah. To keep their shape. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. Um... 
It turns out you need to check these very frequently as tires can lose up to 5% pressure every day. Ooh. The best way for flight crews to know is to have a tire pressure monitoring system, which a lot of people have in their cars. But I'll get more into that after this break. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. And we're back. Hello. Hello. There were 26 findings. I am not reading Oof. all of them. Yeah. But there are a couple of the this was not a problem findings I am going to read. The following were not factors in this accident. Tire design, tire manufacture, or damage to the exterior of any tire. These are important things because they wanted to prove that it wasn't like the tire's actual fault. Correct. And lawsuits. Yeah, that's yeah. important. Although post-accident estimates indicate that the airplane's maximum gross weight may have been exceeded by up to 300 pounds, there is no evidence that weight and balance issues contributed to the accident. So they couldn't prove that the airplane was overweight. Well, because it was all done after the fact. Right. Yeah. So. Well, even if it was, that wouldn't have affected the tires, like, at all. Not with the amount of safety factor they had built in. Yeah. Literally nope. like a two to one almost. Yep. Actually, it was more than two to one, wasn't it? Yeah, it was 48 Yeah, it was more than two to one. Jeebus. There was no indication that the captain's understanding of rejected takeoff criteria was deficient. Thus, the captain likely misspoke when she incorrectly stated the criteria in her pre-takeoff briefing. Yeah. So it wasn't that she didn't understand. The captain's certainty as to whether to continue the takeoff suggests that her initial action to reject it did not result from a perception that the airplane was uncontrollable and could not fly. So... Ultimately, they determined that although the plane veered, she didn't consider the plane uncontrollable. Right. In the absence of evidence that the airplane was uncontrollable, the captain's execution of a rejected takeoff for an unknown anomaly after the airplane's speed passed V1 was inconsistent with her training and standard operating procedures. Nice. Huzzah! Great. The accident airplane's uncommanded forward thrust, which accelerated the airplane at a time when the flight crew commanded full reverse thrust to decelerate, increased the severity of the accident because the uncommanded forward thrust substantially increased the airplane's runway excursion speed. So when you use a reverse thrust on an airplane, how does that work? For those that don't know. I don't know. So on a throttle, it's usually on like an airplane like this, you have two handles and you push forward for more throttle right. forward, and you pull back, you can either get to idle, which is a detent usually, so it clicks into place, and then usually there's either a button, a pull-up trigger, or just a hard shift down into the reverse thrust area. Now, you say, you think, okay, well, but that's a very specific maneuver, basically, to get in a reverse thrust. And that's because it has to be clear, right? You have to be clear that you're not, you want to go past idle. You want to go into reverse thrust because it's really dangerous. Well, what reverse thrust does on an airplane like this is it actually increases the amount of throttle, Mm -hmm. but because it's a bucket, it's forcing that air that's coming at the rear end of the engine to go back forward. The other way, yeah. So this is one of the only reverse thrusts where you can actually reverse the plane's direction. Like you can 
you shouldn't do this, but you can back up from a gate using those kinds of reverse thrusts. Yes. And in a sense, yes, you can. And so Because you're pushing the air forward, which pushes you back. Right. Most quote unquote reverse thrusts these days actually push the air perpendicular to the direction of travel. So they go the, the barrel open, right? And Right. So instead of traveling either forward or backward with the airplane, they travel to the sides of the engine. Right. Out the sides, which create a wall of air that slows the airplane down. We talked about that for TAM Flight 3094. 30, 30, and like also Lauda. 64. And also Lauda, because that one oh, is yes, also the, the wall of air. In this case, it pushes the air back forward. But the thing is, that means it increases thrust to the engine. Well, when those reversers then shut, because the airplane thought it was in air mode, it still had that throttle that it would normally have for reverse thrust. Right. So then it was accelerating forward. Okay, Lauda Flight 4 was episode 26. And... TAM 3054? TAM 3054 was episode 12. All four main landing gear tires on the airplane were operating while severely underdeflated during the takeoff roll, which resulted in the tire failures. All four. Just to be clear. Just really quick, though. So if they weren't underdeflated, the initial amount of poundage technically could have been over... Nope. No, cause it because it was 4,800. Yeah, but if they were underinflated, all of them together probably was over 23,000. No. So the weight on them is still 23,000 pounds, but they because their structure is not in place because they are underinflated, that's why they oh, start seeping was, over the okay. sides. I understand. Okay. The accident airplane's insufficient tire air pressure was due to global exec aviation's inadequate maintenance. Yeah. There's no, re- there's, no duh. They yeah. weren't right checking tire pressures like they were supposed to. Yeah. Now, here's the interesting thing. The NTSB went on to perform an informal survey on other Part 135 operators who... Actually, I don't know if it was just Part 135 operators, but other operators to see what they were doing. The finding. Some operators are not sufficiently aware of the appropriate tire pressure check intervals for the airplanes in their fleets and are operating the airplanes with tires inflated below the aircraft maintenance manual replacement specifications. Literally every day. At least check it once a day. Well, and a lot of the airlines develop their checklists for their airplanes based on the manufacturer, and they kind of develop their own, but it's kind of easy. Like, with these airplanes that have the tire pressure sensors in them, that can just be part of your pre-flight checklist. Yes. Those were not installed on this plane. Right. So the crew had no way of knowing. I'll get more into that in recommendations. The Aircraft Maintenance Manual, or the AMM as I am future calling it, because formats that refer to tire pressure checks as guidance information rather than required maintenance intervals, and the lack of standardization of AMM formats with respect to the location of tire pressure check interval information do not provide sufficient emphasis on the criticality of checking and maintaining tire pressure. So the maintenance manual itself made it seem like a suggestion rather than, no, you need to freaking do this. Right. Right. And it wasn't standard in all of the manuals where that information is found. Uh, the FAA's legal interpretation... Oh, here's here's the legal thing that I needed you to speak to. Okay. The Federal Aviation Administration's legal interpretation that checking tire pressures on a Learjet 60 is preventative maintenance has an unintended negative effect on the safety of Part 135 operations because, according to the provisions of that, a Learjet 60 pilot who is allowed to perform preventative maintenance, such as tire pressure checks, 
on the airplane for a flight operated under Part 91 is prohibited from performing the same checks on the same airplane for a Part 135 flight. Yes. What? Okay, so I understand this one a little bit, but I'm, I can't speak to this one too much, only because I, I don't know all of the law here, but or the rules. So Part 91, for the record, is general aviation. Yes, so there's some very specific stuff going on here. So Part 91 in specific is like Joe Blow owns an airplane. And he goes and flies at VFR, or even IFR, on the weekends, just for fun, to go visit family, to go fly around. So, any of these general aviation airplanes, in that sense, you're allowed to do, to perform your own preventative maintenance, and it's legal, and it can be signed off. However, on a charter plane, not the same thing. You can't have the pilot doing the preventative maintenance. Unless they're certified to do so yeah because these airplanes generally a lot more technical and also part 135 has to follow a lot closer rules so there's there's like okay things like checking oil that's not really preventative maintenance per se that's just normal maintenance good upkeep of an airplane i mean that's just that's just in general something you have to do it's like doing fuel but in the code of federal regulations checking tire pressure is considered preventative maintenance it is well, because it, it could be. they explode. Exactly. <laughs> like, if you were a, a general aviation pilot, and you did the checks on the tires, and the company said, oh, yeah, they, what they said, yeah, and they are not certified to do so, and then something happens with the tires, and then people die, mm-hmm. that's a problem. And more specifically, why is this? That's because in Part 91, when you do something like that, when you're just doing these minor preventative maintenance things, you don't even necessarily have to add it to the logbook. But in a Part 135, you absolutely have to log everything. And so the unintended consequence there is you have to have an AMP to log that. Right. Legally. Meaning that the pilots can't, can't be checking it. the tire pressure. Right. So they, they could, with if it had an installed uh, tire pressure sensor system, Yes. then they could do that. But more of what the NTSB is leaning towards is it's more because of the verbiage in the code itself saying that it's preventative maintenance is mm-hmm. what's preventing them. Right. right. And they can't do it's that. It's not it has the to intent. Be, right. It has to be an AMP because they probably have to use a calibrated gauge and they probably have to do, they have to log it and then, it, you know, it's it's complicated. So, so it adds a whole nother layer that keeps the pilots from doing it because they can't add air to the tire or take it out. No, but... You can also take it to someone and be like, hey, I read this tire pressure, mm-hmm. you know. Well, also to add on to that, part 91, usually you're the one on the In airplane the all the time. Right. On part 135, you have multiple pilots that could be flying these planes at multiple different times. Right. But I think it's reasonable to think that on a walk around, like if you're just walking around your Learjet, you should be able to just go check the tire pressure and say, yeah, that's good. Or no, this is not good. We cannot take off. I mean, that's what truckers do with 18 wheelers. They, yep. they check their own tire pressure. Mm-hmm. So they may, the, NTS, the NTSB yeah. is making the argument that pilots should just be able to do it. And the only reason they can't is because of that one phrase in the code. Well, and here's the thing, even if they can just check it and they can't do anything else, they can At least stop they can the check, flight yeah. from going. Yes. Which is a safety thing. And yeah. fix it or switch planes. Well, the thing is, they so part of the part of the 
verbiage there too is they wouldn't be able to fix it right because they are an amp so be, well, having them be able to check it and be like we can't use this airplane and then leaving it for maintenance is different than hey we need to put air in this tire so yeah. we can take off and with charter operations like this is a lot harder to get maintenance done sometimes at the airports they go to but it's prohibiting the pilot from being able to have the information to make that decision yeah. and right. as we discussed in the last episode like minimum equipment list that's up to the captain done right. end of story if you're not giving the captain the information needed to make that decision there's a problem right so they can't make it yeah well and then the other argument on the other sorry i know we're like stuck on this like a lot but the other argument for that is well if the company is doing what they're supposed to and the company is doing the maintenance checks like they're supposed to every day then the pilot shouldn't have to do it yes but it that that prohibition is still there right is more of what the NTSB is saying. And the attitude they had was, eh. So maybe they're like, well, they checked. I'm sure they checked. It. But it is relatively unreasonable, too, for the FAA to assume that these charter operators, this airplane could literally be anywhere in the country at any airport. And it's unreasonable to assume that they're going to have a maintenance facility at their disposal at any given airport. Because it just doesn't happen. Well, and then it's also like, well, what if you're stuck somewhere where you don't have a maintenance facility, and you suspect right. that the tire's low. You Stop the dang flight. You can't check it, though. Like, that's... Even if I suspect yeah. it. I know. But point is, it's like that flight crew is prohibited from making the call. So. Well, not from making the call, but from checking to make sure. And there is actually a whole industry Ugh. based around this, too, because there are actually traveling maintenance personnel in oh every state, and they will travel to the airplane or wherever it is and do the maintenance for you. And they'll, they're on call. Usually they'll do it 24-7 pretty quick. Well, this whole conversation feeds into the next finding. Segu. Tire pressure monitoring systems, which enable flight crews to easily verify tire pressures. Standard in the airlines. Provide safety benefits because the pressure loss rate of aircraft tires can result in tire pressures below acceptable operation values within only a few days. And such underinflation cannot be visually detected by flight crews. Right. The accident pilots would have been better prepared to recognize the tire failure and to continue the takeoff if they had received realistic training in a flight simulator on the recognition of and proper response to tire failures occurring during takeoff. Right. They were not trained for this. Yeah, so no. they didn't know what to expect. They didn't know what it was when it happened because they didn't know what to expect. Because Part 135 does not require that pilots in on-demand turbojet operations have a minimum level of experience in an airplane type, the pilots may lack adequate knowledge and skills in that airplane that's gonna happen on any airplane though. that also probably changed the following year yep oh. kind of minimum hours on a f well even so at least the captain had enough hours but charter operations are still don't require the 1500 hour yeah well, but she still was a pilot in command though for those what? many hours she was only pilot in command that's for true <laughs> well, that doesn't matter. To to fly commercial aircraft, you have to have a certain number of hours, period. Doesn't matter if you're a first officer or a captain. More of what the NTSB is getting at is that these were inexperienced pilots. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean... And they, they did not communicate. And they should have had more hours. To be on a charter flight with people? Yeah, probably. Yep. So that, that was their entire finding. 
The captain's indecision in responding to the anomaly and her failure to follow standard operating procedures was the result of a combination of poor crew resource management skills, limited experience as pilot in command in the Learjet 60, and, during the accident sequence in particular, her less-than-confident and assertive leadership in the cockpit. CRM, Mm -hmm. CRM, 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 CRM. We have a shirt. It's coming out. CRM. (laughs) Okay. I want a notebook with CRM. That can be arranged. Yes, it can. (laughs) Because I can put it... <laughs> and as a manager, you have to exactly. know this. Exactly. Well, it applies to pretty much anything, right? Yeah. It does. There's different terms for it in different industries, but it's yeah. it's pretty much the same thing. Good communication skills, friends. Let's work as a team. Yes. Yeah. Teamwork is the dream work. Okay. The probable cause verbatim is As always. Yep. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the operator's inadequate maintenance of the airplane's tires, which resulted in multiple tire failures during takeoff roll due to severe underdeflation, and the captain's execution of a rejected takeoff after V1, which was inconsistent with her training and standard operating procedures. Contributing to the accident were, one, deficiencies in the Learjet's design of and the Federal Aviation Administration certification of the Learjet Model 60's thrust reverser system, which permitted the failure of critical systems in the wheel well area to result in uncommanded forward thrust that increased the severity of the accident, two, the inadequacy of Learjet's safety analysis and the FAA's review of it, which failed to detect and correct the thrust reverser and wheel well design deficiencies after a 2001 uncommanded forward thrust accident. It's happened before. So it had happened before. That's really interesting. I also wrote a couple of other flights yeah. to check out. Yes, that means Learjet has a problem. Yes. Three, inadequate industry training standards for flight crews in tire failure scenarios. And four, the flight crew's poor crew crew resource management. management. Yep. That's the probable cause. Yeah, that's a hefty one, but that all makes sense. I think the big thing is if the maintenance was done like it was supposed to, none of the things afterward would have happened. Pretty much, yeah. Moral of the story, just check your tire pressure every day, friends, and everything will be fine. And that's... That's that's a new shirt. Check your tire (laughs) pressure. That's on God. bigger airplanes, mind you, because in GA, you don't have to check it every time. It's Those can be more visually inspected because they're smaller tires. But also... If you're going to be on an airplane with multiple other people mm-hmm. that you're in charge of... Check your tire probably pressure. T- check your tire pressure. Or have someone else do it. I or don't trust whatever. my own eyes. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm going to get into the recommendations, and then Jen's going to finish us out. There are a lot of these. I am not reading several that are more legal jargon than anything, but a lot of these are important. These are all recommendations to the FAA. They recommend that the FAA tell pilots and maintenance that 1. Transport category aircraft tires can lose up to 5% pressure per day. Important. There you go. 2. That it only takes a couple of days to get to a low enough level to require replacement from being too low. Yep. And 3. You can't inspect them visually. Right. These three things were not common knowledge. That's that's not good. Yeah. Because that that's a detriment to a pilot, right? To the industry. Mm-hmm. Well, because if you can't tell if a, if a tire's running low... And it loses that much every day? There's no way for you to know. Well, and so, for example, these tires were recommended to be replaced if it was below... If it was more than 15% underinflated. Right. If they can lose 5% pressure per day... That's three days, yo. Like. Yeah. That's not. No bueno. That's a weekend. Yeah. Okay. 
They recommended requiring all commercial, charter, and general aviation operators to do tire pressure checks regularly to ensure pressure remain within the specifications of the maintenance manual. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. They recommend that the manuals themselves say somewhere obvious and in a standardized location how often the tires should be checked. That sh- it's like should be a section under tires. Tires should be checked every day. Yeah. The point is, the manuals didn't say that. You couldn't find it if you tried. Right. Okay. They recommend allowing pilots to be able to check the tire pressure regardless of operating under Part 91 or Part 135. Yeah, so make sure pilots can get the information to at least say, yes, we can, or no, we can't. Yeah, yeah. what a concept. Here's the big one, in my opinion, my, my humble opinion. The NTSB recommends that the FAA require tire pressure monitoring systems for all transport category aircraft. It makes a lot of sense to me. From what I can find on the internet, this has not been implemented. It's a hard thing to do. I yeah. have found articles as recently as last year calling for the requirement of these tire pressure monitoring systems to be implemented and it the faa still does not require it it is it is in common use that's not to say that it's like not being used right but it's not required by the faa i feel like it just makes everything so much easier yes the problem that they're probably having with that is that okay everything going forward yes can get that yeah there that is probably built into every airplane now Currently, that is being built. It's implementing it into older airplanes. Oh, which the problem is with a lot of transport category airplanes, particularly not the airline ones, but actually charter and private and business jet tend to be really old. Some of them can be really old. I mean, in the airlines, we generally don't get past 25 to 35 years of use, which is pretty old. But in business aviation and general aviation, you're talking about airplanes that can go back 50, 60 years and still be flying. That's, that's pretty their, hard to implement yeah. that system into. And that's their business, like stock. So it's like if you're going to make them replace something, that's a whole plane. Right. Exactly. Yep. So. They recommended that the FAA figure out the problems with the Learjet 60's thrust reverser system design and have Learjet fix them, especially in regards to the air ground signal integrity. So the fact that the tire was able to shatter that system is a problem. Yeah. It's a, yep. It was vulnerable in the wheel well and needs to be protected. Because who knows? It could have, if, if it had not occurred, this plane might have been able to at least slow down slow enough. Slow down yeah. enough that it wasn't as catastrophic it as been, it was. It might have been a survivable accident. An accident Correct. still, but a, probably a survivable accident. Everyone might have been able to get out. Yep. Yes. yes. The, they recommend that the FAA define and create simulator models for tire failure situations, targeting the need for rapid evaluation and execution of procedures, along with realistic sound and motion cues. Then require that simulator training for pilots in turbojets, particularly for these failures to occur near and after V1. Yeah. Here are some recommendations that the NTSB issued after the accident, but before the report was published since they were so very needed. They recommend that the FAA require Learjet to change the design of the thrust reverser system on future Learjet 60s so that the reverse lever positions match the actual thrust reverser position and then retrofit that on already manufactured planes. Yeah, so that you know that if they get stored by the airplane without you knowing that it moves the lever for you. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. 
They recommend that the FAA require Learjet to install sound and visual cues on existing and future Learjet 60s that would allow the pilots to recognize an inadvertent thrust reverser stowage. So not only have the levers move to where they should be, but also like something blinking and something warning you, like the thrust reversers are doing things you didn't tell them to do. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And lastly, they recommended requiring all Learjet 60 pilots to receive training for recognizing inadvertent thrust reverser stowage during both takeoff and landing. If it's a known issue with the airplane, it should be trained and at least told to all the pilots. Correct. That this can happen just so you know. Yep. And here's the things to be aware of. Like... This is how the plane's going to act. Here's how right. you recognize it, because the plane ain't going to freaking tell you. Now, yeah, mm-hmm. the, at the very least, Learjet should implement some kind of warning. Yes. And so and those those were the recommendations that they were like, no, we need to tell people now. Like, don't wait for the report. Let's go. Yeah, it's important stuff. All right. To round us out. So at the end of it all, since it was like a really high profile crash at the time, and you know, the internet existed. I mean, you're talking about... People that are very famous. Yeah. So DJ AM is what um, Goldstein went by at the time. Him and Travis Barker, you know, they were they were on their way. And um, his family and him ended up suing Learjet Goodyear. And Goldstein's estate specifically tried to sue the two pilots. Estates. Estates because they had passed away. So um, <clears throat> I couldn't find... A released like court document <laughs> having the result having like exactly what happened and if the pilots estates owed anybody but i couldn't i don't know i don't know if they were legally determined as at fault to some degree it's really hard to say that because it wasn't completely the pilots exactly fault. my thought learjet if anybody that's yes the, that's learjet. the one that would have gone through yeah learjet and the operator the operator yes the pilots, no, no. not really their so, fault. And Goodyear, and Goodyear not, no. If they no. had done what they were supposed to with the tires, the tires wouldn't have failed. The exactly. tires were fine, and the tires probably had specs that just weren't in the manual for the operator or Learjet. Yep. There were documents that listed those tire pressure loss rates. Yeah. Yeah. So there are two other flights that sort of ha- had the same thing happen. One was T- TWA flight 843. I don't know that um, Which it's the Trans World Airlines. Airlines passenger flight, which crashed after an aborted takeoff from JFK into San Francisco in 92. Hmm. Looking to see if it's on our schedule at all. <laughs> nope. So they did abort after V1, but it wasn't to the point where it was overloaded and the tires were all exploding and all this other stuff. It was just similar. It was very similar because of the V1, but all 280 passengers were fine. They got them all off, but the aircraft did die in fire. <laughs> so Great. Um, and then the other flight was a chartered flight. It was Spantex flight 995. Oh, yeah. From uh, Madrid to Bajaras. Yes. To New York. And that was actually an interesting one that I would, you know, I think it would be fun to cover that because they're, they they talk a lot of, it, it's, it's, there's very minimal information I could find on it, but I didn't really try. But um, it yeah, was bad. That one was a... Uh, I found the technical report. Misconfiguration. <laughs> it was a DC-10. If anybody's interested in the Spantex flight, there was a podcast that... DJ Steve Dahl 
played the tape that somebody who was on the flight recorded. Hmm. So I Oh my gosh, and they actually have the report in English. Yeah, it might be a fun one. And so the government investigation, uh, let me see here. Hmm. In the case of the court and whether Goldstein's, he requested $10 million for medical expenses, lost earnings, profits, economic damages, and another $10 million for mental and physical pain and other non-economic losses. Their bodies were covered in jet fuel when they left so a lot of their body was burned away mm-hmm. there's just a little quote i want to end with where travis barker was interviewed and he said when i jumped through the emergency exit when the plane blew up i was in such a hurry to exit the plane that i jumped right into the jet which was full of fuel my whole body lit up i had jet fuel on my whole body i burped jet fuel for almost three months when I jumped into the jets, I started running. I was ripping off my clothes because that's what instincts told me to do. But little did I know I was still on fire because I was soaked in jet fuel. He had burns to 65% of his body. He almost lost his right foot. And he's a drummer. So that's a problem. Pretty important. Um, he said, I was running toward the highway and I heard some guy yelling, stop, drop, and roll. And that's what I did. Stop, dropped, and roll. And... He said my feet were on fire the longest, which, oof, check your tire pressure. (laughs) It's really hard for people who go through accidents like that and survive that the, like what you think would be the proper thing to do after you get out. Cause really the big Mm -hmm. thing is get out. Yeah, of course. And on a small jet like that, I mean, there's almost no way that you couldn't have jumped through the engine or somewhere near the engine yep. because it was right next to where the exit was. Now, on a big passenger aircraft, that's a little different because the engines aren't as close to where the passengers are. Well, and the airplane is designed to minimize death. Yeah. And, I mean, that's why when you look in a lot of the safety cards for you know the airlines and the bigger airplanes... Is it specifically tells you to look outside the emergency exit first and don't open the Before door. Or you just open the door. Don't open the door if there's fire, which in the case of this airplane, the whole thing was on fire. So it didn't matter where you left. It was pretty much, yeah, it was pretty much a par for the course. You kind of got to get out and deal with the fire. <laughs> That's, it's unfortunate. It really is. But small airplanes like this, there's not much they can do because. Also, with a lot of these smaller airplanes like this, the majority of the fuselage and the cabin, like the passenger cabin, has the wings under it, which is where the fuel tanks are. So, also not very good. And then usually right at the rear of the wing is the engine. There was a lot of coverage in the news about all this stuff. And I did find something where Learjet basically denied responsibility for a lot of it. Um, and that's why they went to court for so much. It did sound like, though, that Learjet had the biggest holes in their well, like manuals and design. Yes. To be honest, though, like what, what the representation that Learjet portrayed, it's very ugly in that. Like that whole, like it's super hard to find it. But I know that the two other people was an assistant to Travis and somebody's security guard. And the assistant got seven something million from... Learjet and Goodyear combined. I can't believe that Goodyear settled. For I don't anything. think they, they should have, but I do remember when I was growing up that that was a huge thing back then. Like people were like, "Don't buy Goodyear." It turned into a meme. Yeah, it's not mm-hmm. Goodyear's fault, friends. You know. It's the operator's fault. So, 
What's yeah. the the town number? That was November Niner 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 Lima Juliet. Mm-hmm. Nine 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 Learjet. Yeah. That's a kind of a cool town number actually. I do like it. All right, you want to tell the people your big announcement? Send us out. Yeah, so I'll be taking a little hiatus. Brendan's going to be taking over for a little bit, but I'll be back. I promise. I will. This is not permanent. Don't freak out, friends. No. <laughs> we don't. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't want to talk for you. But no. We've talked I'm about sorry. it together. We don't know how long it's going to be. But as long as you need is basically the answer yeah. to that. We kind of want to be a little bit open with it and that it's okay to take breaks for mental health. And that's what this is. Yep. But and even if Brendan wasn't willing to step in, Christian, I would have figured something out. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I can fill in here and there as needed, but. Also, yeah. he will be on like listener episodes and like stuff for the Patreon and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Stuff that doesn't require him to put in hours of research. Yeah. It takes a lot of time for these guys to put this podcast together. And I've only done like like two episodes where I did stuff. <laughs> and one where I listen and it's like, ugh. Yeah, usually when I do my research, it kills a whole day, which is usually all of Sunday. Yeah, which is half the weekend. <laughs> yeah, it's half of my entire weekend, and I need to play some catch-up in my life, basically. For stuff. IRL. So, yep. yeah, when when you listen to the next episode and, and subsequent Nick is not here, <laughs> don't freak out. <laughs> He's fine. <laughs> Everything's yep. fine. Everything's okay. It's just a break. Yeah. So that was our announcement. That was the announcement. Da, 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 da. Da, da, da. Okay. Thanks everyone. As always for listening, um, merch coming soon, like way sooner than you would think. We got Ooh. some, we got some recently and it looks really good. It yeah. looks amazing. Samples are sure not good so far. Thanks yeah. guys. So keep an eye out for that. There's a bunch of stuff on the store that pretty much no one would buy, but I got anyway, cause I thought it would be funny. <laughs> yeah. We're all going to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> Just for uh, us, not for anybody else. Yeah. If you find weird, quirky things, cool, it's Miranda. Then it's definitely just me. Yeah, it was probably her. And, <laughs> and buy them because they're cool. Whatever. It's up to you. Again, thanks to all our patrons. You guys are awesome and amazing and help everything move super smoothly. The and merchandise would not be possible without you. No, not at all. <laughs> so yeah. thank you so much. Thanks to all the listeners, too. It really wouldn't be a thing without you guys. Yep. Listenership is still going up, so that's good. It's good stuff. And, Slow but steady. Uh, also, we got a listener question. I'm not going to say who it's from because it's the question It was more of an episode request. And it was about Alaska 261. I covered that as a Miranda-sode. We won't cover it as a main episode for multiple reasons. Uh, one of them being if we covered it again, it just wouldn't be good work because we <laughs> already know what happens and we already covered it. For one. Yep. And two, it's exclusive to the patrons and they're donating money. Why would we take away that exclusivity? Yeah. So if you want to listen to that, my suggestion would be take a month and do the $10 thing and listen to that Miranda sode or listen to all the Miranda sodes. You can. And then you can peace month. out if you want. And then just go, bye. I'm, I'm leaving. So, yep. but we're... Anything, if it's not on the main blog page, make sure you check the Miranda Sode page because if it's on there, we're not covering it. Sorry, friends. <laughs> but um, you can also find stuff that's related to that, though. If you ever go to any of the crashes what, uh, Wikipedia, Wikipedia page. pages, there's always like, see also underneath all of it. Yeah. That's and, where Jen got those two flights. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So just so you know, like, look at those and you can suggest those to us and we'll cover those because usually. I won't cover those on a Miranda-sode, so... Yep. 
I won't cover big crash. I've learned my lesson. I won't cover big crashes as Miranda Sodes anymore because yeah. people get really angry that <laughs> they can't listen to it. The two big ones are Alaska Flight 261 and Air, Air Florida, Florida Flight 90. 90. Yeah. So, so just, you know, Patreon one month in spam them all. <laughs> yeah. Just and like just binge, binge, binge listen to all of yeah. them and then peace out. Really, if you or wanted stay. to do that. Or yeah, stay. Or stay. It's up to you because you get most stuff on it on the ten dollar level so yeah so uh, you'll be getting merch yeah uh, discounts i just i just saw that yesterday and i was like friends come on <laughs> i think we've discussed this before but just so you guys know that it's not happening if it's covered in a Miranda episode it's not going to be a main episode sorry submit and, your listener stories yes uh, favorite listener favorite or flowering aviation stories and or weather stories and or just stories we like stories because those are fun, and we like reading them. You'll get uh, an extra episode, everyone will, for May. May, Actually, technically, too, because the listener is an extra episode. But we're they're going to talk about, Christy, Nick, and Brendan are going to talk about their trip that they take in the next couple weeks or so. Yeah. So, something to look forward to. Again, thanks for listening. Thank you, Jen, for being here. Thanks, thanks for having me. And it's ass- so assisting. special to have you. <laughs> Physically. <And laughs> stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll catch you all next time. Keep your airspeed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you're using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us a feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Jen and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Naughty Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.